0: chapter six of weapons of mystery this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org weapons of mystery by joseph hocking chapter six afterwards when i awoke to consciousness i was in my bedroom for some time i could not gather up my scattered senses my mind refused to exercise its proper functions presently i heard someone speak i had no idea he was so far gone a voice said you see his power of resistance is very great and it needed four times the magnetism to bring him under that it did your servant i'm sorry you experimented on him at all said another voice oh i can assure you no harm's done there you see he's coming too i felt something cold at my temples and then a strange shivering sensation passed over me and i was awake voltaire kaffar tom temple and simon Slowden were in the room how do you feel mr blake asked voltaire blandly i lifted my eyes to his and felt held by a strange power i'm all right i said almost mechanically at the same time feeling as if I were under the influence of a charm. Then, said Voltaire, I will leave you. Good night. Immediately he left, followed by Kaffar, I experiencing a sense of relief. Did I do anything very foolish? I asked, recollecting the events of the evening. Oh, no, Justin, replied Tom. And yet that Voltaire is a terrible fellow. Half the young ladies in the room were nearly as much mesmerized as you were you acted in pretty much nearly the same way as simon here but nothing else do you feel quite right i'm awfully weak i said and cold shivers creep down my legs you were such a long time under the influence whatever it is said tom but you'll go back to the drawing-room no i don't feel up to it but don't you remain i'm feeling shaky but i shan't mind a bit if you'll let simon remain with me and so tom left me with simon you feel shaky and shivery, Simon. I asked, "Not a bit on it, sir." Was the reply. Never felt better. But tween you and me and the gatepost, yon Henfidel ain't a serve me like he have you. I don't like the look o' things, your honour. Why, Simon? Why, sir? Tain't me as ought to tell, and yet I don't feel comfortable. I wish I could have had a confabulation with you afore this performance come off. I ain't got no doubts in my mind but that hinfidel and that dutiful brother have got dealins with the devil. Simon rose and went to the door, opened it, and peered cautiously around. That Egyptian is a watcher, he said grimly, and I don't like either of of 'em. What's the matter, Simon? Why, this year mornin' I were exchanging a few pleasant remarks with one of the maid servants, when I hear the Egyptian say It's gwine beautiful. How, says Tother? He'll nibble like anything, was the answer, and then I heard a nasty sort of laugh. Soon after I see you with a beautiful young lady, and I see that infidel a-watching you with a snaky look in his eyes, so I kept on watching, and excuse me, your honor, but I can guess as how things be, and I'm feared as how this vaccination dodge is a trick of this ere willin. explain yourself, Simon. Well, sir, I knows as how you only been here one day. But I can see in a minute as how you was smitten with a certain young lady, and I can see, too, as ow that white-eyed willin' is smitten in the same quarter, and he sees ow things be, and he means business. It was by no means pleasant to hear my affairs talked of in this way, and it was a marvel to me how Simon could have learnt so much. But I have found that a certain class of English servant seems to find out everything about the house with which they are connected and I am afraid I was very careless as to who saw the state of my feelings. At any rate, Simon guessed how things were, and more than that, he believed that Voltaire had some sinister design against me. What do you mean by what you call the vaccination dodge, I asked, after a second silence. Excuse me, Your Honor, but since that doctor vaccinated me and nearly killed me by it tough as I be, I came to call all tomfoolery by the same name. I've been in theatres, your honour, played in pieces, and I'm known the willin' in the play to get up a shindy like this. I knows they's only got to arrow up the feelin's o' tender females, but I'm afeard as ow this Voltaire they've got somethin' in his head, a uh, concoctin' like. Nonsense, Simon, I said. You're thinking about some terrible piece you've acted in, and your imagination is carrying away your judgment. I hope is out, tis, sir, but I don't think so. "'If you chop me up, sir, you'll not find 6 of imagination in my carcass. "'But I calculate I'm purty every wid judgment. "'Never mind, sir. Simon Slowden is in the house. "'If you should want help, sir.' "'I did not much feel inclined to talk after this, "'and so, dismissing Simon, I began to think of how matters stood. "'Certainly, everything was strange. "'Everything, too, had been done in a hurry.' It seemed to me I had lived a long life in twenty-four hours. I had fallen in love. I had made an enemy, and I had matched myself against men who possessed a knowledge of some of the secret forces of life, without ever calculating my own strength. And yet I seemed to be beating the air. Were not my thoughts concerning Voltaire's schemes about Miss Forrest all fancy? Was not I the victim of some chaotic ideas? Was not the creation of Cervantes' brain about as sensible as I? Surely I, a man of thirty, ought to know better. And yet some things were terribly real. My love for Gertrude Forrest was real. My walk and talk with her that day were real. Aye, and the hateful glitter of Voltaire's eyes was real, too. His talk with Kaffar, behind the shrubs that night before, was real. The biological or hypnotic power that I had felt that very night was real, and above all a feeling of dread that had gripped my being was real. I could not explain it, and I could not throw it off, but ever since I had awoke out of my mesmeric sleep, or whatever the reader may be pleased to call it, I felt numbed. Weights seemed to hang on my limbs, and my whole being was in a kind of torpor. I went to bed at length, however, and after an hour's tossing fell asleep, from which I did not wake until ten o'clock next morning. I found on descending that nearly all had breakfasted, but the few with whom I spoke were very kind and pleasant towards me. I had no sooner finished breakfast than I met Miss Forrest, and entered into conversation with her. Once with her all my dreads and fears vanished. Her light eyes and merry laugh drove away dull care, and soon I was in paradise. Surely I could not be mistaken. Surely the quivering hand, the tremulous mouth, the downcast eye, meant something. Surely she need not be agitated at meeting me, unless she took a special interest in me. Unless, indeed, she felt as I felt. At any rate it were heaven to think so. We had been talking, I should think, ten minutes, when Tom Temple came towards us. "'Say, Justin, my boy,' he said, "'what do you say to a gallop of four? "'Who are the four? I asked. "'Miss Forrest, Miss Edith Gray, Justin Blake, and myself,' was the reply. "'I shall be more than delighted, if Miss Forrest will.' I did not finish the sentence. At that moment I felt gripped by an unseen power, and I was irresistibly drawn towards the door. I muttered something about forgetting, and then, like a man in a sleep, I put on my hat and coat and went out. I know not where. I cannot remember much about the walk. It was very cold, and my feet crunched the frozen snow, but I thought little of it. I was drawn on and on by some secret power. I was painfully aware that Miss Forrest must think I was acting strangely and discourteously, and once or twice. I essayed to go back to her, but I could not. I was drawn on and on, always away from the house. At length I entered a fir-wood, and I began to feel more my real self. I saw the dark pines, from whose prickly foliage the snow-crystals were falling. I realized the stern beauty in the scene, but I had not time to think about it. I felt I was near the end of my journey, and I began to wonder at my condition. I had not gone far into the wood before i stopped and looked around me the influence had gone and i was free but from behind one of the trees stepped out a man and the man was herod voltaire good morning mr justin blake he said blandly why have you brought me here i asked savagely he smiled blandly "You will admit i have brought you here then he said ah my friend it is dangerous to fight with a man when you don't know his weapons i want to know what this means i said haughtily not so fast he sneered come down from that high horse and let's talk quietly yes i've no doubt you would have enjoyed a ride with a certain lady better than the lonely walk you've had but then you know the old adage needs must when the devil drives and so you've admitted your identity i said well i don't want your society say what you want to say or i'm going back yes he said revealing his white teeth i'm going to say what i want to say and you're not going back until you've heard it and more than that promise to accede to it again i felt a cold shiver creep over me but i put on a bold face and said it always takes two to play at any game yes it does mr blake and that you'll find out you feel like defying me don't you just so but your defiance is useless did you not come here against your will are you not staying here now against your will look here my man you showed your hand immediately you came and you've been playing your game without knowing the trump cards it looked very innocent to be mesmerized last night didn't it oh mesmerism is a vulgar affair but there was more than mesmerism realized last night I played three trump cards last night, Mr. Justin Blake. The Egyptian story was one. The thought-reading was the second. The animal and mental magnetism was the third. I had tested my opponent before and knew just how to play. When I took the last trick, you became mine—mine, body and soul. I still defied him and laughed scornfully into his face. Yes, you laugh, he said but I like your English adages, and one is this, those laughed best who win. But come, he said, altering his tone, you are in my power. By that one act last night you placed yourself in my power, and now you are my slave. But I am not a hard master. Do as I wish you, and I shall not trouble you. I defy you, I cried. I deny your power. Do you, he said. Then try and move from your present position. I had been leaning against a tree, and tried to move, but I could not. I was like one fastened to the ground. He laughed scornfully. "'Now do you believe?' he said. I was silent. "'Yes,' he said, "'you may well be silent, for what I say is true.' And now he continued, "'I promise not to use my power over you on one condition. Name it,' I said. "'I will name it. It is this. You must give up all thoughts, all hopes all designs of ever-winning Gertrude Forrest for your wife. And if I refuse, if you refuse, I shall have to make you do what I would rather you would do willingly. Think as you will. But she can never be yours. I do not mind telling you now, for you dare not speak. I have marked her for my own. And mark you, she must be mine. No power shall stop that. If you presume to speak to her, I will stop you in the act if ever you seek to walk with her i will drag you away from her nay more than that i will make you act in such a way as to make you to her an object of derision but i said if you possess such a power over me which i do not admit i will proclaim to every one in the house the villainous means by which you have possessed it i will make you an object of hatred his light eyes gleamed with an unearthly glare Think you I have not thought of that, he said. Try and tell of my influence over you. Seek to speak one word against me, and mark the result. I defy you to utter one word. Again I was silent. I seemed hemmed in on every hand by this man's terrible power. Come, he said. Do you consent to my terms? Do you relinquish all thoughts, all hopes of ever winning Gertrude Forrest? In spite of my strange situation, I could not help seeing two rays of light. One was that this man must have seen that Miss Forrest looked upon me with a degree of favor. And the other was that, if his power was as great as he boasted, he needed not be so anxious to obtain my consent to his terms. If I were wholly in his power, he could do with me as he would, and need not trouble about any promises of mine this led me to defy him still. Herod Voltaire, I said, villain by your own admission. I do not believe in your power, but admitting it for the moment, I still refuse to do what you ask me. You have guessed my secret. I love Gertrude Forrest with all my heart, and I will promise neither you nor any other man to give up hopes of winning her, and mark you this too. Although by unlawful means you may have obtained mastery over me, as surely as there is a God who cares for men, your power will be broken. Meanwhile you may force me to act against my will, but my will you shall never have. Fool! Idiot! he cried. You shall repent this. You shall be dragged through mire, dirt, pain, defeat, disgrace. And then, when all is over, you will find I have had my own way. He made a step towards me. Stay there for a quarter of an hour, he said, and then you may go where you will. He rushed away and left me alone. I tried to move, but could not. And yet I realized this. Although my body was chained, my mind was still free and active. When the quarter of an hour was up, I went away with a great weight upon my heart, wondering yet dreading what would happen next. End of chapter 6